0: I think having people around who are at truly the top of their game has really helped me conquer that fear of, okay, I'm going to take this really big swing and it's very possible that I fail in a really public way. And I think that the more you do that, and like, you know, when you do fail, because you know, when you take big swings, you fail. like that's what happens and sometimes you hit it and sometimes you don't, I think you learn to deal with that ego glow. Welcome to For The Long Run, the podcast
1: exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. Through personal and professional connections in the running world, I have the privilege of getting to know some amazing athletes. I've always been fascinated by the psychological aspects of running and what helps people to achieve success, however they define it, and this podcast is aimed at exploring this and much more. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Freedom Solar Power. When I first started looking into solar, I thought it would be a clunky and expensive process. I've learned it isn't nearly as hard as you think. Freedom Solar Power makes it simple. They provide a turnkey solution that is focused on educating their customers on the experience from installation to everyday use and savings. They ensure you have all the information needed to make sure going solar is right for you. From firsthand experience, it makes sense both financially and for the environment. With no down payment required, solar not only adds immediate value to your home, but it's also great for the environment and might even provide immediate savings, not to mention the year-end tax benefits, a credit of 26% this year. Freedom Solar operates in Texas, Colorado, Virginia, and Florida, and there are plenty of other great options nationwide. Thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode. Tracksmith just released their spring collection, and as a season shift yet again, I'm proud to continue this partnership with them. Tracksmith is a brand for committed runners like you and me. People who know that the best part of a busy day is squeezing in a workout. They offer products for training, racing, and rest days, which you know I'm a fan of, and create experiences that make running more rewarding, more connected, and more meaningful. Visit tracksmith.com slash for the long run to see some of my favorite pieces and all orders with the code for the long run, all one word, will receive free shipping and 5% of your purchase amount will be donated to the Michael J. Fox Foundation to help find a cure and support those living with Parkinson's. Welcome back. I have Tyler Andrews joining me from Very far away and very high up, which we'll get into. Um, This is Tyler's uh, second round on the podcast. His first episode was episode 14, which was about 200 episodes ago. So, Tyler, uh, welcome back to the podcast and uh, excited to dive in here.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it was 200 podcast episodes ago and maybe like 3,000 miles closer to each other.
1: (laughs) So, uh, first question um, for those who don't know, who is Tyler?
0: uh, who am I? Who's Tyler? Um, so I am an endurance athlete. I'm a runner. I'm a mountain climber recently. I've kind of been bridging those two more together, but I've been kind of pushing my own limits in the endurance sports space, starting as a runner and now moving more into the mountain ultra trail world, uh, for the last gosh, I don't know, 15, 16 years now, since I was a teenager and I'm here in Quito, Ecuador. Very
1: cool. Um, and so you're, you're living at 9,000 feet. Um, you're, you're doing your thing. You had a focus when we last spoke. Your focus at the time was on the roads. You had just raced in Project Carbon X, uh, seeking 100K world record. Um, and you were, you were talking about the long road racing. So yeah. talking about the, um for those who want to hear about your, your intro into running or into longer distance, um pop back to episode 14. But today we're gonna to chat about more of the transition and and mm-hmm. where your mindset is at now and what you learned in the last couple of years. Um uh, so curious about the the desire to move from long road stuff to long long mountain stuff.
0: Yeah, I think desire is is really the right word there. And I think it pairs with motivation for me. I am someone who has always been motivated by finding things that challenge me and sometimes scare me a little bit. And whether that's, you know, going up against Jim Wamsley on the roads in the 100K or, you know, trying to run up a 20,000 plus foot mountain, I think it's that same spark that I get inside that that kind of is like, Oh, that's exciting. That's something that I kind of daydream about and think about and freaks me out a little bit in a, in a good way. And I think those are the kind of things I look for. So yeah, when we were talking last, it's, it's interesting. Like it actually wasn't that long ago, but a lot has changed for me in terms of what I'm pursuing in my career. I think I still thought of myself as, as a road guy and a mar- even a marathoner, like I was still prepping for the 2020 marathon trials, uh, Olympic marathon trials. And I did run those, but I think that was really kind of a catalyst race for me in that, you know, obviously the global pandemic, COVID started right after that. And that kind of first, I would say, six to twelve months of the pandemic was really me just trying to figure out what motivated me with not a lot of real race options at that point. I didn't have the marathon anymore. I didn't have like a you know that I'd, I'd been playing to run comrades, which is a long road ultra that year and that obviously got canceled and like US 100k champs got canceled. So it was like all these road ultras that I was kind of interested in got canceled and I suddenly just kind of like stumbled into the FKT world, um, mostly because I had always been interested in hiking and climbing and mountaineering and I had kind of been doing that in my off season. And so it was really right after the Olympic trials in 2020, I went over to Nepal on vacation. Like I just planned to do a hiking trip over there. I always wanted to go to the Himalaya and have this time, and that was like right before COVID kind of blew up. And I went there, and it essentially everything in the United States started shutting down while I was there on this hiking trip in the middle of Nepal. And I realized very quickly, talking to my agent and my coaches and people at Hoka, that all these spring races that I wanted to do were going to get canceled. And long story short, I decided to go after this FKT on the Everest Base Camp trail which that was kind of my first really long trail run. And it was just like, it was such an amazing adventure. I had so much fun and like, it was so hard and like really interesting ways to me that I found fascinating. And that was the beginning of this focus of like, okay, maybe I can kind of combine this love for, you know, being outdoors in the mountains at really high altitude with the long distance running stuff that I've been doing for the last 10 years? And is there a way that those overlap? And so I think these last few years, I've really been basically just figuring out how to combine those two things. And it's been a lot of experimentation. It's been a lot of trial and error. There's been a lot of failure in there. But it's been an amazing process to just discover this kind of new joy in the sport. Uh, where I kind of felt like I was plateauing in the marathon, and that's why I moved to the longer road stuff because I felt like I still had room to improve there. And then once I moved to the mountain and trail stuff, it just felt like a whole new world of opportunity to learn and grow and get better. And and so that's kind of where I am now. Is I, I feel like I've just spent the last few years really getting my feet under me in this world and tackling some. Really cool projects and getting able to like rub rub elbows with some like really amazing athletes in the ultra trail world and kind of learning from them and uh, yeah now I think that's that's kind of been my focus for the last couple of years and it's funny because now we're talking and I'm actually in a marathon block like (laughs) I'm kind of going back to my roots and like uh, I'm gonna try and get my third Olympic trials qualifier for 2024 so I'm actually like. Completely ignoring everything I just said and like doing, going way back to that. But, but that's still, I think, my longer term focus. This I see as more of like a stepping stone to other things. But now I see, I definitely see myself as more of a, a mountain trail athlete going forward. Are you marathon training at 9,000 feet? Yeah. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's been really interesting because I've done a couple, of, I've, I've spent a lot of time in keto. Keto is a, a place that I've been coming to since 2008. And it's kind of become my de facto uh, winter training block at al- or, or winter altitude training camp for the last like, I don't know, four or five years. And there have been some times where I've been... I've, I've done really good like marathon and 50k, like road 50k, fast 50k blocks here that have gone really well. So I think I'm, I am like really lucky and that I like learned about altitude in the Andes, where I just think in the US, there's a very different attitude about like what is high and like where you can train at. And here it's like, you know, I train with runners here who are really, really good. Like we have some Kenyan guys in our group. We have some Olympic caliber Ecuadorian and Venezuelan guys in our group. And like, you know, to them, it's like nothing to train at 9,000 feet. That's what they do. That's where they live. But if you tell an American that you're going to go train in Breckenridge for a marathon and like do fast long runs and stuff, they're like, you're out of your mind. That's crazy. So I think like, it's a little bit of that just like setting your expectations differently here, I kind of always just had that of like, oh yeah, it's just this is where I come for altitude. It's normal, and like my body reacts really well. I know it's not for everyone, but for me, I think I can I can get in the work I need here at at nine thousand feet, and, and we can actually even go down to like seven thousand feet or four or five thousand feet if we really want to get a lot more oxygen and get the legs moving a little bit. But, anyways, yeah. So I I am doing a marathon block now, but it's been um it, for me it's very much a stepping stone to staying in touch with that speed for other trail races in the future.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. It's just, it's just like fascinating to hear you talk about it in that way. Um, As we talked about, I spent two months at 9,600 feet and like, I I didn't have a good long run for two months. And like, (laughs) it was the last week that I was there and I ran 15 miles and I was like, whoa, this is this is great, but you get stupid fit. Yeah. But then it gives you the context of like now I'm in Boulder and like 5000 feet doesn't yeah, seem it feels easy all that high. Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk too much about altitude. I just find I just find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to something you mentioned. You mentioned you have failed a lot and learned from it you've taken some like spectacularly large swings over the years (laughs) and I really respect that. And you've just been like, fuck it. I'm doing it full send. Yep. Here's my, here are my goals. I want to set world records. I want to, you know, run up Everest, like crazy shit like that, that Mm -hmm. like most people might set one of those goals as like a lifetime (laughs) challenge. Um, talk to me about like shooting your shot. And like, where does this like gusto
0: come from? (laughs) Where does it come from? I I have to give a lot of credit to the people around me. I think like I've been very lucky, like I mentioned before that I've just been surrounded by literally some of the best people in the sport. Like I was living with Jim Wamsley and Flagstaff and his partner here in Ecuador. I trained with Carl Egloff, who's probably a less well-known name to, to the runners out there, but is the best speed climber in the world. Got the records on Denali and Kilimanjaro, and um, he's going for Everest. So, like, I've just, I think I've been so lucky to be surrounded by such really talented people um, that, you know, it's literally like it's breakfast conversation at Jim's house to be talking about winning UTMB, you know? So it's like it normalizes those things a little bit where it seems from the outside like, oh, wow, yeah, when you look at it on paper, like these are really crazy things that, like, not many people are thinking about or capable of doing. But when you surround yourself with the right people who are performing, you know, at this truly exceptional level, I think you allow yourself to think, okay, yeah, like Jim can do that, why can't I? Or Carl can do that, why can't I? And that's been really positive for me in terms of helping me set goals. I think having people around who are at truly the top of their game has really helped me conquer that fear of, okay. I'm gonna take this really big swing. And it's very possible that I fail in a really public way. And I think that the more you do that, and like, you know, when you do fail, because you know, when you take big swings, you fail. Like that's what happens. And sometimes you hit it and sometimes you don't. I think you learn to deal with that ego blow. Like, sure, it still hurts your ego and it it it's like hurts your confidence when those things don't go well. But I think one of the things I've learned over the last, I don't know, like five or six years, especially of my professional career has been how to look at those events, whether they go well or poorly, and take something positive from it. Okay, like, you know, you mentioned Project Carbon X was around the last time we talked. Like, I ran two of those projects. It dropped out in both of them, you know? Like, in both times, I was going for the world record. In both times, I realistically thought I have a shot at the 100k world record. And both times, I didn't even make it to, like, 40 miles. It's like, not even that close and i took a ton away from that like at the time those were super disappointing results i was really bummed about them i was really stoked that jim did so well um but at, but at the same time i was like yeah i was super disappointed like it sucks like the few days after that it's like you're just like kicking your own ass about it a little bit but at the same time i think as i've gotten older and a little bit more mature you can look at those and transition more quickly from like wow i suck and i should just quit running to Okay, like that was a big goal. I went for it. Here's some things that I probably screwed up both on race day and in training. And those are going to make me stronger next time. And then I'm going to find the next thing that motivates me. And again, like we, we even the very first question, I think that the big thing for me is motivation is like, what is the thing that motivates me? And I think for me, that's always been like figuring out where can I. Where can I compete at the highest level? Like that is the thing that excites me the most. You know i I love competing against myself and seeing that self-improvement. Like that's what's been motivating me since I was a you know a teenager. but at the same time, I want to compete with others at the absolute highest level that I can. And I think that's part of what pushed me from you know the road marathon scene to like the road fifty k scene into like the ultra trail world is just like, okay, I'm finding my niche. It's like, where can I be the most competitive? You know I could, focus on the marathon for the rest of my career. And maybe with super shoes and everything, I'm going to take a couple more minutes off my PR, but I'm never going to run 201, 202, even 208, you know, and be competitive on the world stage. I know that just from my physiology. So it just didn't feel that exciting to me anymore. The motivation was not there. It was like, okay, I kind of figured out where my limits are with this one. Um, and I'm going to go do something else now because, like, it's just not that exciting to me. It didn't motivate me to go out and train my butt off just to, like, you know, take a minute or two off my PR. That just, it didn't seem that cool. It felt a lot more exciting to be like, okay, I can go to a really big trail race and be competitive with the lead pack, or I can go, you know, set a, a record on one of the seven summits. Like, those are things that are really, to me, like the pinnacle of those sports. And, like, yeah, obviously they're more niche sports, but I think that they also are more catered to my specific skill set that i both have innately and the skill set that i've developed over the years so in terms of big goals kind of getting back to your question i rambled off a little bit but i think i i'm at the point in my career where if i don't have a really big goal i don't really have the motivation anymore like i think i've been doing this for long enough that i need something it's really big of both an internal and external goal so it's like it's really hard for me personally and then it's also really competitive like on the world stage like that's how i get motivated and and yeah like like i said before it kind of scares me sometimes like literally i get like goosebumps but i think that's that's the sensation that i look for when i'm thinking about what to pursue in the long term
1: that makes sense i totally get the um what you were saying about like where where does the motivation come from? If it doesn't, if it's not equal parts like excitement, possibility, and fear, then what's the point? I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of your answer to this question. Um, you had said your ability to set these goals and take these big swings comes from the people you're able to rub elbows with, or break bread with, or whatever. Like you and I share that in that, like I feel incredibly lucky. And it's a luxury that like I get to do that as well, some of it through this podcast and some of it through like the people that i I know in the community but um and it's incredibly valuable to just see excellence and observe excellence and see it in practice when somebody is not exposing it or like they're not on they're not on right like if you're having a conversation with a friend, they're not recording a podcast so they're not you know, a a part of a panel. And so to just see like day in and day out of somebody who is able to be excellent is invaluable. So my question is, for those who don't have that luxury and who aren't, you know, eating breakfast with Jim Walmsley or, you know, recording 200 podcast episodes with people like yourself, what's the takeaway? How do you emulate what these people are doing um, without, you know, being in their living room?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure I have a great answer. I think that almost all of us know people who are exceptional at something. I don't think it has to be the thing that you are pursuing. Like I got really lucky because I became friends with these people who are exceptional at the things that I want to actually do. I think that you know you could find you know the professor at your university or your friend who's an exceptional violinist or something you know like there are people who are exceptional at something everywhere around us and you see tons of overlap in the personality traits the way that these people live their lives whether they're pursuing music or business or running a lot of the same kinds of motivation and drive and passion and even just like little things like the way that they structure their days and the way that they focus and the way that they talk that I see parallels all the time between whether it's, you know, other high level athletes, um, that I know, or again, even just like business people or musicians or artists, I see the same kind of traits. So I would say just try and find those people who are really passionate and exceptional in their field, whatever that is, and then look for that overlap. It doesn't have to be in sport. It doesn't have to be in exactly you know, like road ultras, if that's your niche, like you can get inspiration from Usain Bolt. Um, if you're an ultra runner, maybe he's a bad example, but like, you know, there are lots of other athletes that, that we can look to for, you know, I look to guys like, uh, you know, like Alex Hummel, I think is, is a really inspiring athlete with what he's doing and the way he's pushing the sport and the way he's, uh, uh, you know, pushes himself and um, manages fear and things like that. So I think there's, there's all kinds of ways that we can look to people whether they're literally the people in our house or, or in our friend circle, or they're people who are just out in the wider world that we can, you know, maybe not get to know personally, but, you know, go listen to podcasts about other people, um, whether it's Jim or Killian or, you know, people in, in other other sides of the sports or read their read their memoir or something like that. I, I actually read a lot of, of, of memoir, whether it's uh, athletes or like movie stars, I find them really fascinating. Um, what are the commonalities that you're, seeing in the memoirs? Um, the commonalities are that most people who we think of as extremely successful were really unsuccessful for a long time before they were successful. Um, you know, like the expression 10 years to an overnight sensation, I think applies to almost everyone, whether you're, you know, a movie star or an athlete, it's like you spend so much time just being given all this horrible feedback and doing poorly, like the people who are truly exceptional from like day one, like Usain Bolt probably is an example of that. He's a genetic freak of nature. He's the best we've ever seen. Um, Elliot Kipchoge might be another example uh, in the running world, but most of these people, you know, like go read about Jim's story. Jim struggled a lot. Um, You know, and I think that that is the thing that a lot of us miss when we look at someone doing something exceptional is we see Obviously you see the exceptional thing you see that publicized but what you don't see unless you go you know read the book or watch the documentary or listen to the whole story on the podcast or whatever is the 10 years of you know having a little success and then a lot of failure and then a little more success and then a lot more failure and then a little more success and like even in that super exceptional thing or even afterwards when they're already really famous like you still don't see all those times that that person is failing. Like, because there's no story about that. Like that doesn't make it into the YouTube documentary or into the New York times. It's like, you know, if Alex Honnold like goes halfway up half dome and then comes back down because he gets freaked out, like, or, or El Cap, like that happens in, in the, in free solo in the movie when he, when he's talking about it, or like the first time he goes up, he makes it like a third of the way and then just like bails. Cause he's like, I just wasn't feeling it. And like that we know about because it's part of the story. And it's part of a film. But normally, like we have tons of things like that, you know, and all the mountain stuff that I was just doing in the last few months, I was probably batting like 300 for like things that I actually like wanted to accomplish and then did. And there were like two out of three times where I would like go try and do something and then either I would fail or I would get freaked out and turn around or whatever. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And most of the time, you don't hear about those things you only hear about, Oh, here's the one really successful thing that they did. And so you kind of assume that like all these high level athletes are just bouncing from like great success to great success, to great success. And you don't see like this silent graveyard of like all this other stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I can't, now I can't even remember what the question was. Sorry, I'm rambling. that
1: answered, that answered the question. Um, so the, the concept of the consistency, right. Uh, is, is fascinating to me. My dad, my dad made a comment recently and he's probably listening to this. Hello, Dad. Um, he made a comment, he's like, It it surprises me the level of access you have to these incredible people. And I'm like, Yes, they're incredible people, but they're they're just exceptional at being consistent, right? Hmm. Sure, there's some genetics at play, but you can't have good genetics and not be consistent and be good for a long period of time. You you have to do the yeah. work and um, I forget who I was talking with about this, but they were. Oh, it, it was uh, Peter Bromka, actually, uh, oh, at the uh, so Yes, go jumbos. Um, so yeah. we were. He was talking about how he finds that people who are chasing a goal who don't hit it at first and continue to push on—they're the most interesting people. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if that goal is breaking two hours in the marathon, breaking three hours in the marathon, breaking five hours in the marathon, the number really doesn't matter. It's the approach of a goal where you're not doing it for a while. Um, And you can't follow a journey or you can't chase a goal like that and struggle, 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 succeed, and not have interesting takeaway. Like, that, exactly. that process inherently is interesting because of the variability of success and failure and success and failure And then um, another friend of his and, and ours uh, Jake Tuber talks about the the like corkscrew principle of like life is like this spiral that you're sometimes you're going up and sometimes you're going down and sometimes you're going up. but the goal is for the start point and the end point, to be on a different plane, right? You start here and your corkscrew is corkscrewing its way up and you can fail, you can succeed, but the, the, and the Delta might stay the same of like, wow, that was really awesome. And wow, that was really terrible, but it just (laughs) inches up and up and up and your ability to attain excellence improves and your ability to do things that you know, three years ago might've seemed totally unattainable and totally unreasonable becomes that big, scary goal that you can chase. Like five years ago, what you're doing today, would you have thought you'd be doing it?
0: No, definitely not. No.
1: So what's that like to, to look back on that and be like, damn, Tyler of 2000 and whatever, he would be shocked with what, what Tyler of today is doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I look all the way back to like high school for me, like, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about running. And I think it's one of the things that attracted me to the sport and attracts a lot of people to sport is that you do have that level of comparison. So you can see that, that, uh, that corkscrew, or I think of it like a sawtooth sometimes like going up, there are lots of things where you can't objectively say in the same way I am X amount better than I was five years ago. Right? Like in, if you're a basketball player, you can say, hey, I, I could have kicked my ass five years ago, or I can kick my five years ago time's ass and on, on the basketball court. But you don't have the same metrics where you can literally just look at your training log and say, okay, yeah, I'm way faster. I couldn't have done that five years ago. That would have been completely unthinkable. And I think that was it was one of the things that initially got me hooked in running. Because like, when you're getting started, usually that improvement happens very quickly. And I think that was super exciting to me to see that you know, even like literally week to week when I was, you know, 16 years old. And now I think it's, it's looking at things like, yeah, I'm taking on things that I couldn't do before. And maybe like, again, I'm, I've reached that plateau level in the marathon or, or even in, you know, like the 5k and 10k, I think I could still improve a tiny bit in those events if I really focused on them. But it's like, okay, where is that delta gonna be the biggest that you're talking about? Right. Like where can I see the biggest improvement? And, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to see how interrelated all those things are for me. Like I think I've gotten so much better at running on trails and running on mountains, even in the last two years. It's just such a unique skill that I didn't have significantly um, from the first like 10 or 12 years of my running career and then just focusing on it for a little bit. It's again like it's like you're a beginner again all of a sudden and you see those tremendous gains really quickly. But now it's really interesting to see, okay, actually, like some of that just getting stronger, I think, running more vert, running more at altitude, going to really high altitude the last few months. Now I'm seeing this transition back into like the marathon stuff where suddenly I'm like, oh, wow, I'm like having the best marathon phase I've had in a couple of years all of a sudden, which is really cool. Um, because now it's like I'm doing workouts that at 9,000 feet that I would have like been pretty pleased with at sea level a couple of years ago. So it's like, that's, that's really exciting to me to be able to see, see things like that, where it's, you know, you see the improvement and it's one thing to measure it like event to event, but it's another thing to see like how those kind of carry over. And it's, it's almost like a cumulative effect where like the, it's greater than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? Where like, if you improve like across various disciplines, it's like, Oh, like you're getting stronger your, maybe your uh, mechanical efficiency is improving and that's going to affect everything. So it's going to affect your you know, higher end speed. It's going to affect your mountain climbing. It's going to affect your mountain descending, um, all that stuff. So it's been really interesting to see how that happens. Um, comparing myself to that person five years ago on the physical side of just like seeing how all those little things have improved and then how as an overall athlete now, I feel so much stronger across the board, actually. Like I, I really expected this block of kind of speed of marathon work to feel really hard and really uncomfortable and to have that transition be a lot rougher but really what i'm finding is like actually the the mechanical stuff came back really quickly of running fast and i'm so much stronger than i was 4 or 5 years ago that i'm able to handle way more work at a way higher clip at higher altitude which like all those things are great so yeah i think it's it's one of those things where everything like a rising tide lifts all boats to keep using like tired clichés like you know like every, everything when when everything is improving a little bit you end up sometimes getting this big boost you know what i mean
1: thanks again to freedom solar power for supporting this episode of the podcast and our environment by providing an easy green energy source the buying process was fascinating and eye opening and i am excited to pay my learnings forward If you're curious about going solar in your home, message me on Twitter or Instagram, and I'd be happy to help your journey by providing some great resources. Freedom Solar is a full-service solar company that's been installing solar panels and backup power systems since 2007. They operate in Texas, Colorado, Virginia, and Florida. Not in any of those states? Don't fret, my parents have the same panels from SunPower that were installed by a different company in Massachusetts. SunPower is the best in the business, and that's what Freedom Solar uses. I've enjoyed working with the whole team over at Freedom Solar, and I'm sure you will, too. Thanks again to Tracksmith for supporting the podcast. I'm proud to partner with Tracksmith, and they're going to donate 5% of your order value to the Michael J. Fox Foundation for all orders, and you'll also get free shipping. The Michael J. Fox Foundation is dedicated to finding a cure and helping those living with Parkinson's. Both of my grandfathers have or had Parkinson's, and I'm grateful for Tracksmith's support for something so personal. Visit tracksmith.com slash for the long run to see some of my favorite pieces, and all orders with the code for the long run will contribute towards this donation. I have been loving their Harrier long sleeve and Olson half tights in particular. So for anybody who needs a point of reference, the conventional uh altitude conversion for nine thousand feet is like more than thirty seconds a mile. So is it? I actually for, didn't even know that. Yeah, it's pretty substantial. Huh. It's like, yeah, it's I, I think it's right around there. Um, I looked it up when I when I got to Breck last year. So it's so cool that you're able to look back on things that you were doing maybe in Boston and be running those same paces where you are now. And it's, it's the kind of thing that it's like, it's, it's almost unbelievable, right? It's like, (laughs) look at this growth and look at what happens when you really just, I told my coach the other day, I was like struggling getting out the door for a run. Mm -hmm. He was like one foot in front of the other. I believe in you. Like that's all it takes. And these workouts and the, the consistency allows you to be that person that, you know, is doing the same paced workout at nine thousand feet that you were doing, you know, five years ago, maybe in Boston. The the takeaway for those who aren't, you know, going to crazy high elevations is, like, look, look at look look back at some of your first runs. Look totally. at your first five k time. Look at your first. You know, I had a conversation with Emily Abadi on the podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, and she was just like, I couldn't run a half of a mile without stopping, like. Look back on that and then extrapolate or think forward. Like, what will I be looking at in two years that will be normal that today seems hard? Like, I find that to be incredibly motivating Yeah. Um, and in- incredibly like having that not like it's not an ego. It's not a cockiness. It's like if you do the work, you will improve. And And sometimes we need those reminders and sometimes we don't but it's, it's really cool to see it in practice and see it like actually coming true.
0: Yeah. And, and I would just add, I think the other, so first of all, I think there's always things we can improve. Um, whether you think you've hit your ceiling or not, uh, there are always things and it doesn't just mean like, I'm going to run more mileage or I'm going to work out faster. It could be, I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to, I'm going to do more uh, strength training. I'm going to do more vert. I'm going to try and make my long runs longer. Maybe I'm going to try a new race distance. Um, or it could be like a completely non-physical thing it could be just like the mental side of sport like how how strong is your mind like we focus so much on the mileage and splits and all the physical side of training and that's i think one of the big things for me also that i look at when i look at okay tyler in boston versus tyler here today in keto is that i feel so much stronger mentally i feel like i'm in such a better headspace than i was when i was there and that again it's one of those things that it affects everything across the board because it means I can train at a higher level means I recover better. It means I'm just a general happier person. It means that when I'm racing, I'm stronger and tougher. Like I think that's a huge part of it too, is is finding out where can I improve? Because yeah, if you're again, if you're a beginner, you'll see huge gains with very minimal like Anything. complication in your training. Yeah. Just run more. Right. Just, just run, more, run consistently. more. Yeah. It's very simple. Like running is really simple. Just run more. But then you get to a point and a lot of people find this like after college where it's like, I was already running hundred miles a week. What more do you want me to do? Like, you know, and they're like, all right, I guess I'm done. This is it. And I think I was always someone who was like, well, first of all, whatever. I could just keep adding more mileage and I've run a lot of ridiculous mileage, but like nowadays I think, okay, like how, like what other things can I do? Like, how can I, you know, I've been doing this. I've been like, you know, obsessively trying to perfect my, my running for the last 15 years. What else is left to do? And I keep finding like these huge treasure troves of things. And I think that for me, the mental training has been like one of those huge, huge things um, in the last few years that's that's really helped me, you know, in addition to just being physically stronger, is just like getting the most out of my body and like being more cooperative with my brain, if that makes sense. Totally. I want to dive more into that. But the fact
1: checkers have gotten back to me on the altitude conversion. Um, Jack, <laughs> Jack Daniels offers a, a calculator. Um, on uh-huh. how to adjust interval and threshold and tempo runs at different altitudes. And it doesn't go to 9,000 feet, but the 8,000 <laughs> 8, foot calculation is 20 to 25 seconds a mile. So okay. making sure we're not spreading any uh, misinformation here on this podcast. Yeah. Um, so talking about the mental game, um, yeah. I've observed your career and from the outside, it looks like you've gotten stronger mentally. Not to say you've had you know, mental weakness in the
0: past. I totally have. It's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You said that on the last podcast, yes. (laughs) Um, but but um it's it's clear that you're a different athlete than the last time we spoke. And um it's like in the way that you're that we're interacting about what you've done, what you're doing, like you're clearly a different person. How did you how did you do that? Or how are you doing
0: that? Um, yeah, that's... A, well, I like the second question because I think of it as very much an active process that right. you're never really done with, kind of like training right. the body. Um, how have I done that? Uh, gosh, where do you even begin? I mean, the the short answer is just like physically, I think I failed myself a lot mentally. Um, I think that really like right after... like it, it, we We're talking that podcast was recorded in May of 2019 and like that was not... Me at my best uh like that year, and the following year, I had a lot of stuff in my personal life that was just kind of not going well, and also running was not going well. I think that I was like you said, taking a lot of really big swings and kind of new stuff, and uh, just a lot of them in a row did not go great. Um, I think that fall two that yeah that fall two thousand and nineteen, I won the fifty mile national championship, and that was like my first good race in like a year. Um, that I'd taken like a bunch of things that had lined up and just all gone poorly for various reasons. And so I think that I was just doing a really bad job at the time of, like I said before, taking the positives from those failures, I was just beating myself up and I wasn't entirely healthy. I'd had an injury the year before that I was still kind of dealing with. So it was just like a confluence of a bunch of things that had me in a really negative headspace in general where running felt really stressful. And like every time I was going out, I had to prove something to myself and to other people. And that wasn't good. I think that the Olympic trials and then the beginning of the pandemic really did serve as just a huge catalyst and transition point for me in my life in terms of... That was the first time that I really seriously thought, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I just don't know if I'm motivated to do this. And it was one of the lowest points in my life. I had gone through a really uh, tough breakup with my long term partner. And um, that had just like affected me really negatively and had been dealing with depression before that and then was dealing with it afterwards. And especially after the trials of having no races on the calendar and suddenly like just this big kind of hole in my life, it was, yeah, it was a really, really dark time. And I think that that whole, the, there wasn't like one kind of like, you hit rock bottom moment, but those kind of months were the months where I was like, okay, I need to turn this around somehow, um, and I need to like like basically, if I want to continue pushing my body, I can't do it in the headspace that I'm in. It just like wasn't happening. Like there were days where I just like couldn't get out of bed, let alone get out and like train at a high level. I was like, okay, I just can't. I still feel like I care about running. I feel like I care about pushing myself in this like endurance sport world, but I just I literally can't do it right now. And it kind of forced the issue of figuring out how how do I deal with that? How do I deal with my uh, inner monologue and in my brain in a way that is productive and is going to make me happy? And that happiness then leads me into being a better athlete as well. So. For me, from an athletic perspective, I think it really started with just getting into a healthier headspace in general of being a happier person and dealing with my depression. And, um, you know, that was some therapy. It was a lot of like mindfulness and meditation and stuff like that. And just kind of like learning to live with that. And, and some of it was just time and letting some things, you know, time heals all wounds. And this is just my like bad cliches podcast, but, uh, (laughs) um, But no, but seriously, I think a lot of it was that and and just learning to i i, I don't even there's like there's no like simple way to say it other than just like learning to be more uh resilient yeah resilient is a is a really good word like learning to deal with suffering and failure and pain, whether that's mental and physical and you know I think ultra runners like to pat themselves on the back a little bit about like being so tough and like I don't think that ultra runners are any tougher than top level 800 meter runners. Um I think it's exceptionally hard to train for any really hard endurance race, but I did learn a lot in um in some of these like really really long days out there, like specific days that have like that I can look to and be like, "Oh yeah, that was like a lot of really hard physical and emotional distress that I had to deal with and that taught me a lot." So I think it was a little bit of a virtuous cycle in terms of I was trying to actively take care of my mind and doing things to do that and then also as I did that I felt more happy and I felt more like I could go out and train and then that enabled me to take on some of these kind of projects that were bigger and cooler and scarier and exciting and then I went and did those and some of them went really well and some of them didn't but they were they were all like really interesting learning experiences. And I learned a lot about myself in all of those. And so now when I think about myself and my headspace and where I am, it's like I don't feel, you know, I don't feel like I mastered that. I don't feel like I'm a hundred percent, you know, happy all the time. I don't think anyone is, but I feel like I'm in a situation where my like day-to-day running performance does not determine my happiness, which I think is really important that I I'm able to look at that as a part of my life. And I'm able to look at my successes and failures both in a positive light sometimes. And again, it's not to say that I'm not motivated by success. Like I'm a super competitive person and I still beat myself up when I don't achieve something, you know, it's like we were running K's the other day and it's like on the track and it's like, Oh, I hit three Oh one instead of three flat. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> let's go a little quicker on the next one boys. Like, you know, so it's like that still exists and that still motivates me but it's not like this uh, you know like existential like need to prove to myself that i am worthwhile um and i think that's that's the really important distinction that i've made in terms of looking at running and general life happiness as kind of a balance and so now i feel like the the kind of headspace and physical space are pushing each other in a positive direction um whereas i think a few years ago, they were kind of pushing each other in the negative direction. And I was in a little bit of a downward spiral. I think I have turned that around a little bit. And again, like I still struggle. I still have bad days and bad times and bad workouts and bad races. But I think, like you said, with your corkscrew analogy, that general trend is, is going up now. Um, and I think that's, that's something that I look at me now as an athlete and as a human being. And I'm like, yeah, that, that person is in a way better spot than he was even 3 years ago.
1: It's fascinating, um one of the most consistent messages that I've learned or heard on this podcast from high level athletes or high level business people or whatever is the disassociation of self worth and mm-hmm. uh, outcomes that you can't uh control, yeah, right? You can control certain things and you cannot control like you can't control how you perform on race day to a to a certain extent. You can control doing all of the right things and putting yourself in the best position for race day. You can control all of the, you know, day-to-day things that you do that allow you to be, you know, conventionally successful, et cetera. But if the determinant of success is how you perform against others, or against a, an objective or or, or a arbitrary number, like you can't control who shows up at a race. You can't sure. control that you know the the top men in the world are running two hundred two, two hundred three, two hundred one, one fifty nine. Like <laughs> those are things that you can't control, but you can control getting the best out of yourself on the day. And I found it to be so fascinating personally. Like my best marathon was on a day where I didn't give a shit about the outcome. <laughs> and i stood on that start line i was like this is a celebration i'm going to tear it up and see what my body can do on this day and i PR'd by 20 minutes wow and that was no surprise like i was you know 15 miles into that race and i was like huh, i'm going to have a good day like this is a good day um because it, i came to it from that approach and then i started asking a question that i'm going to ask you and then we'll continue from there but I'm curious, what what is your definition of success? And I wish I asked you this in 2019 so that we could <laughs> compare the two test. answers. Yeah, because I have a feeling it, it's very different than what you would have said in 2019.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think that... Gosh, that's a it's a really good question. Cause like there's so it's so nuanced, like there's so many levels, right? It's like such a simple question, but it's such a complicated answer. And um there's no one little sound bite that I think I could give you that defines it for me. Um because to me I think I think like success means it means different things when I think about success for me as an individual versus um like how to put this, like so we we talk a lot about internal versus external goals, right? And I think that those are two different things in terms of success. I think there's two different types of success there. And I think they're both important. There's the success that you have, which is like, am I proud of what I've done? Right? Like, I think maybe that's your soundbite. Is like, success is like, am I proud of what I've done? Like, that's the most fundamental piece of success for me. Because if I'm not proud of what I've done, and other people care about it, I don't really care about it that much right? So it's like, that is uh, to me, the most crucial piece is, am I proud of it? Does this make me feel fulfilled? Does this make me feel happy? Like capital H happy, not just like eating ice cream happy. Like like five exclamation points. But what's interesting
1: is you control that. That's entirely in your control.
0: I I disagree. I don't think it is in my control because I think that um, like how the way... I guess like all of the individual steps are kind of in my control, but like how everything lines up on the day, like I'm thinking about like a specific competition or something now. It's like I can be proud of my, maybe you're right. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I, I, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm like stumbling a lot of my words here. Sorry, listeners. So, um, maybe,
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe where you're going, or I sort of see what you mean. Like you can execute the best to your abilities and still get beat by somebody else that makes it
0: Right and that can still be disappointing right like i can it, it, like i can feel like there can be a a level of success where I feel proud of an effort I put in, even if I have a terrible race. Like so, my like, my race at, at Leadville hundred last year is a good example of that. Like, I went in talking all this big braggadocio about how I'm going to win the race in my first hundred miler and blah blah, and like I shit the bed and had a really bad time, but I finished the race and I was really proud of that. Like that was an extremely challenging physical and mental thing to do. Um, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done was to finish that race, and just not drop out It was so hard. And so I was very proud of that. Um, am I proud of the way that I handled that race? No, not really. So like, I don't consider it successful in, in some sense, but I also, I do consider it successful if that's like a weird one, right? Like, I think it can go kind of both ways where it's like, you can have something where like, it's successful on one level and it's not another, I don't know, maybe we like, like tearing this apart too much. <laughs> like, well it's like
1: fulfilling and right. you still want more.
0: Right. And I, I think that your your definition with with talking about things you can control versus the things you can't is a really interesting way to look at it. Because again, that's an example of like I think there were things in my control that I did poorly. Overall I it's, it's tricky because like I don't consider that race successful but I am proud of it so maybe now I'm like violating my own definition out of that <laughs> I'm getting too far into the semantics here but like I think we're we're like mixing up a little bit like the ideas of like pride and contentment and success right which are like all kind of very closely interrelated but are not quite the same thing and I think success is this fuzzy word that we think of as like, okay, success is winning the race or success is getting a medal. Um, That that's what success is for me. And, but success is also something that we define. And so, yeah, sure. For me, success, sometimes I define it as like, that's my goal is to win the race or to set the course record or whatever that is. And in retrospect, sometimes we look at, okay, was I successful in the way that I executed my plan? Or if I didn't do that, I can still say I was successful in the way that I dealt with that adversity in that race even if it was completely my fault you know so like I think there's multiple levels of success there starting with like the the external of just like okay this is my public goal is to you know run this time in the marathon or win the race and then there's okay like did I execute well and then it's like okay if I didn't execute well did I still deal with it well I guess that's kind of the the way I would look at it is like those three tiers now that I've like really talked myself into it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. That makes sense. Uh, and definitely like an ongoing thought process for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't think, um, I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? We all have our own definitions of what makes us happy. Um, and as long as we know what that is and chase that, like that's, that's substantial. Um, I want to go back to something you said originally, you said at the start of the pandemic, you realized that like you didn't have races and you fell into FKTs and, and started chasing some FKTs and big adventure projects um, and you're not racing as much. Talk to me about being a professional athlete with a focus on these big adventures versus lining up and competing at Leadville or Western States or yeah. like these places where you see so many pro trail runners competing.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit of two sides of the same coin. I think the pandemic has made things just different in so many ways. And I think now, hopefully, knock on wood, we'll start to see things like a little bit more like pre-2020 for the foreseeable future. Um, again, I think it goes back to motivation. It's it's what motivates you and, and how do you stay motivated when you're training and how do you find goals and objectives that are cool and exciting to you so for me sometimes that's racing and sometimes it's going and you know an fkt is essentially a virtual race over many years right so whether that's the grand canyon or it's everest these are places where the best athletes have gone and tried themselves on these specific things um you know you can have an fkt from your house to your mailbox or whatever and no one really cares about that but if it's really exciting to you that's great it's still motivating to you i think for me the fkts that have been that have kind of like lit a fire inside me have been the ones that are challenging to me that have other athletes who I really respect who have gone after them and either have those records or have had them in the past or have gone and failed. Um, and they're projects that challenge me specifically with the skill set that I've developed over the years. Like I think of myself as someone who competes really, really well at high altitude um, relative to other people. And there just aren't that many races at 10,000 plus feet, you know, like (laughs) it's a part of that is that is like, okay, I think that I can be one of the best in the world on really, you know, high altitude runnable or even not runnable now, just like just high altitude mountainous things, whether that's a super long race, like a Leadville, which again, at this point, I don't really consider that high or it's, um, you know, some of these longer mountain FKTs like Aconcagua the one I just did, or even something like Everest or Denali someday, like these really big mountains that are a little bit more technical, I think that plays really well to my skill set because I've found that, yeah, I can compete with the guys who are the best in the world on these really, really high mountains. And that's something that I'm actually quite new to in terms of the speed climbing side of things. But it's something that I've found I was really successful at really quickly. You know, I... The way that I think about it is like a lot of pro runners talk about that moment in their childhood, the like gym class mile, you know, like you've heard the story a billion times where it's like, yeah, I was like not that athletic and then we all had to run a mile in gym class and I realized like I was so much faster than everyone and like I never had that moment I was not an athletic kid like I I was not even like the athletic kid who was good at the gym class mile I was like still getting like last not last but like I was still like not doing that well in those things like I you know I think I had the slowest high school PRs of like anyone at the Olympic trials probably for the last two Olympic trials and like these these big mountains was kind of my gym class mile it was like I went out Like the first time on Cotopaxi, which is like our big mountain here in Ecuador, without even really training for it, and like tied Carl Igloff's record. And that's, he's the best in the world at this stuff. And I'm like, oh shit, like, okay. So that might be something I'm good at. And that was kind of an eye opening moment for me of like, oh, this is something that's really cool and exciting to me that is totally different from everything that I've been doing for the last 15 years. And it's funny because I've always loved mountaineering and I'd loved climbing and hiking, but I always thought of it as like, this is what I do in my off season. Like, this is what I do on vacation because it's really hard to like run 140 miles a week on flat, you know, trails or whatever, training for a marathon or a 50K when you're like off doing these big mountains. Like, it's they're really incompatible. And like, so that's just what I do for fun. It's not actually like something I do competitively. And then I was like, "Oh, wait a minute! I really like that stuff. Why can't I just do that competitively? That sounds awesome. That's like the best of both worlds." It like had literally never occurred to me until like a couple of years ago that like, "Oh yeah, you could like, there's like races and FKTs and stuff that you can go for." Um, and so part of it, part of the reason I've gone the FKT route is just because I think in the niche of of like the really high altitude stuff, which is what excites me the most right now, and and kind of where I've found my uh, my niche in terms of my natural ability, I'd say there just aren't that many races that i think are that are on really big mountains um you know i think leadville the reason that that's so exciting and i'm i'm going back this year is because it's it's it mixes up a lot of the things that i feel like are are in my skill set it's runnable it's long it's um you know it's relatively high but again not super high um so i i think that that makes it really interesting to me but you know, if there were like a a race up Aconcagua, I would totally do it, but there isn't. It's just like people go and do it every few years, and the f k t goes down or it doesn't and so I think that's a circuitous way to answer that is like part of it is just like this is a niche that I've found that I really enjoy uh competing in and training in, and that I think I can do really well at, but it's just it's it's like a completely different discipline in that you know there is no race up Everest. There's no race up Akakagua. There's no race up Denali. Um, it's, it's, if that's just like the culture of that side of the sport is, it is more individual for whatever reason, like part of that being literally just like logistical, like you usually can't hold an actual race on these things with a bunch of people at the same time. So yeah, that's the, the long and short of it is like, I love competition. I love competing against other people, whether that's head to head, person to person, like in an actual race, or whether it's you know competing against the ghost of Killian Jornet or Carl um, you know from their time a few years ago. So to me, it's still competition. It's still I'm competing against those people, and it's just whether they're literally next to me on the mountain or on the trail, or they're you know in the history books.
1: Very cool. Well, I will definitely be seeing you at Leadville, so that's exciting. Awesome. Um, and are you running for really really... crewing or pacing? No, no uh, we're um, we're there for work. Gotcha so um maybe it may crewing nice. um yeah so that that should be fun gotta get some of those high altitude pies i i, I hear the oh, pizza place in town is it's good, <laughs> very sorry. good um cool thanks so much for taking the time to chat today and really share um how you've evolved really is what it sounds like over the last couple of years um i might have to go back and listen to that uh Listen to that episode from, from May of 2019, but for anyone <laughs> yeah. out there who, who listened to this one and, and has also listened to, um, that episode, love to hear your thoughts and, and share it on social and let us know what you think. Um, uh, Ty, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time and, uh, we'll see you, we'll see you out there. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Of course. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next time on For the Long Run, and in the meantime, happy trails. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too. This podcast and the accompanying music has been produced by Brian Walters of Single Track Sound. For the Long Run's logo was created by Vanessa Wolf of Sterling Wolf. Show notes have been written by Ruby Wiles and is managed by Emily Holland. It takes a village.